0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, And I'm
1: Dublaini Chakraborty.
0: And where we left off last time, we were talking about a story from the old Western frontier, specifically talking about Cynthia Ann Parker and her son, Kwana Parker, who was the last Comanche chief. And um, it's been a sad story so far, one that we really kicked off with. Cynthia Ann's own kidnapping when she was only nine years old. Yeah,
1: focusing mostly on her life and what happened after that kidnapping. She was taken from her Texas family home, she and her brother and some more of her relatives, and while most of them were ransomed back, she never surfaced. They were never able to get her back or to find her. as uh, She was just sort of lost to them.
0: Even even hear a word of her until the uh, mid-1840s, when reports of her started to, to pop up. And soon enough, the picture was pretty clear. She was alive and well. And was in fact uh, living as a Comanche. She had been raised by Comanche parents. She eventually went on to marry a Comanche war chief named Peta Nakana, who was interestingly also her her captor, um, and had two sons with him, Quana and Peanut, and a daughter named Prairie Flower. And um, by all accounts, seemed to be completely content with her life, which was clearly something that disturbed the other settlers. They did sort of
1: learn of her whereabouts and tried to ransom her back like they did the other relatives and she would not go.
0: No, she wouldn't go. And and her people said, you cannot, you'd have to kill us. We, you cannot take her. We will not ransom her for any sum. Um And, you know, I, I would imagine that would be relieving to hear that she was alive to her family. But most people were were concerned about the news because here was this woman. You know, she had been kidnapped as a child and she was happy in her new life. She was happy living among the Comanche. She had no wish to return to her life with the settlers. Uh, So where we left off specifically, though, Cynthia Ann was going back whether she liked it or not. She had just been recaptured.
1: Yeah, she had been recaptured and taken back to live with her biological family. And when we saw her last, she was not happy about this. She was very sad because she felt that her or she knew in her heart that her husband and her sons had been killed.
0: Yeah, she believed that they had both uh, both her sons and her husband had been killed in the raid where she was captured. Uh, And she also just knew her her life as a Comanche woman, was over. And, I mean, aside from believing that her husband and sons were murdered, she was entirely miserable in this new situation. She tried to escape repeatedly from her, from her family. And what makes it all the more sad is that she wasn't allowed to, well, she wasn't allowed to go back to her people, clearly. But she wasn't allowed to leave or lead a a retiring life either. She was put into the public eye because, of course, she had been a well-known person since her... Kidnapping at age nine. I mean, we mentioned in the last episode, she was even used as a warning. Mothers would warn their children, don't wander too far from the house, or you might end up like Cynthia Ann. So clearly the news of her recapture was huge, all over papers, nationwide. And she ended up being celebrated in Austin, but clearly... The crowd intimidated her. The attention frightened her. It was a woman who had gone through a lot of trauma recently, and it was almost more like she was being put on display as some kind of curiosity rather than somebody who they were genuinely glad to have back.
1: Right. So she lived with her uncle for a time, and then with her brother, Silas Parker, and then finally she lived with her younger sister, Orleana. Neighbors remembered her as being incredibly helpful during this time. For example, she could tan hides, she sewed, she chopped wood, she even made herbal remedies. But they also remembered her as being incredibly sad. She was said to have slashed herself in a Comanche expression of grief. The moves to different family members just took her further and further away from the frontier and deeper into the forest. They
0: would promise that maybe they'd let her go visit her her family and her friends at, at certain points. But, yeah, they were just moving her further and further away from the country that she'd always lived in. Um, Prairie flowers seemed to, to thrive. You know, she was obviously just a very young girl when her mother was recaptured. She grew up learning English, studying, but she unfortunately died in 1864 of pneumonia. And after that point, uh, Cynthia Ann really had no connection left to to her old life and seemed to, to spiral um, and died a few years later in 1870, also possibly of pneumonia or the flu. But um, like a lot of the story and a lot of the stories related to Quanah's life, there are different accounts, depending on the source you look in. And a lot of sources say that she starved herself to death. Um, So that's basically the end of Cynthia Ann's story. Even though she does come into play later in Kwana's life, he remains devoted to his mother and really inspired by by her story when he's a warrior, but also inspired by her... I don't know, her, her double capture as a, as a man when he's trying to reconcile his own two sides.
1: So now we're going to kind of switch from Cynthia Ann's life and look at Quana and, and his brother. We know, we're not sure exactly, we talked about this a little bit in the last podcast, we're not exactly certain what happened to Cynthia Ann's husband, but, uh, we, we can be pretty sure of what happened to Peanut. He died of smallpox and Quana came out of this terrible experience. I mean, Think about all the things that happened to him. He was orphaned quite young. Either way, no matter which story about what happened to his father, you believe, Whether believed. his father
0: died in the raid or whether he died, as Quanna said, a couple years later.
1: Right. But he came out of it a competent warrior. He was strong and taller than most of his peers at six feet tall. His first major raid in 1868 at age 20 was kind of a disaster, though. It was an old-style raid where youngsters would make their names by stealing some horses on these incredible, long, sometimes multi-year treks into Mexico. And this one in particular was commanded by a Kiowa war chief. The whole group almost starved. They went two days without water twice, and clearly times were changing. I mean, the Mexican settlements were aggressive and they were they weren't able to steal that many horses. In fact, Quana arrived back at camp on foot,
0: which is uh, terribly humiliating. Yeah, I mean, just this just to think of of this raid um, compared to what raids might have been like in Quana's father's age where you could expect on one of these Multi-year treks, uh, you know, a thousand mile trip or something of coming back, having made a name for yourself, having amassed a certain amount of wealth. Horses were the measure of wealth for Comanche too. You know, that was how you would pay a, pay a dowry and get married. It was, it was the basis for a lot of their life. So as a young man, setting yourself up with a lot of horses was a good way to, to start out. But, Clearly, it wasn't easy pickings anymore. Things were, were getting tougher for the Comanche. And, um, Quana did take part in more raids that year in, in Texas. And it's worth noting here that some sources go out of their way to explain Quana didn't participate in what most people would consider war atrocities. And we went over quite a few of these in the last episode. But, um, the, the raids where rape is involved, um, murdering children, kidnapping, torturing people, mutilating people or mutilating bodies, um, which of course were a political tactic of war by the Comanche or, or by, um, by various tribes to, to try to force settlers off the land, to try to scare them so badly. It's not about numbers. It's about Terrifying people into leaving and and reclaiming their land that way, but a lot of sources seem to absolve quana of of a lot of things like that and and S. D. Gwyn, the author of Empire of the Summer Moon, points out that violence was a pretty standard thing for a young Comanche warrior to participate in as both an intimidation tactic like i just described and of course also an act of revenge for captured family members for murdered family members um regardless though of of what quana did on these raids specifically he did come to prominence in his early 20s after two fights in particular and both really show leadership and resolve more than anything
1: yeah in one his raiding party was attacked and the war chief was killed and as we saw in the jim Bowie episode this usually led to just complete chaos because the warriors would try to collect their chief's body but in this case Quana stepped up and shouted new directions he also challenged a soldier in what gwen describes as kind of a joust and he got shot in the leg but he shot his target also in the shoulder with an arrow, and his party managed to escape. And they elected him their leader that night.
0: The second incident was in the summer of 1869, where uh, his raiding party murdered a man driving an oxen team. Uh, when a party rode out to pursue them, Quana, instead of uh, fleeing, hunkered down in the bushes and ended up lancing two men. And his guys saw this; it urged them on to continue the fight. The battle ended up being a draw. I think the Comanche party ran out of ammo. Um, but again, the party was really impressed by quana's leadership, by his bravery, and elected him as the leader. So, consequently, quana became a, a leader among his people in an age when most of his battles were going to be More about survival, you know, not like the, that first raid into Mexico we talked about. They were going to be more about survival and protecting a way of life than stealing horses or intimidation. Because by 1870, there were only about 4,000 Comanche left and only about 1,000 who hadn't gone on the reservation left. So this, this, or hadn't gone on yet. So this free life that they were leading, uh, was, was clearly waning.
1: And the Civil War's end really saw an uptick in the government and military response to the few free Native Americans who were left in the West. William Tecumseh Sherman, as General-in-Chief of the Army, was intensely concerned with protecting the railroad interests out West, ending the Plains Indian Wars, and really forcing the remaining Native Americans, like Quanah's Quahati Band, onto reservations.
0: Yes, the Quahati Band, and we described on the last podcast how the Comanche were broken into these autonomous bands. They were one that had rejected this treaty called the Medicine Lodge Treaty in 1867 trying to move the the remaining tribes, the remaining bands, onto the reservation. So clearly they were a target. In addition to being the, the Comanche band with maybe the fiercest reputation, they were a holdout as well. Essie um, Gwynn ominously called this the situation in 1871, quote, the beginning of the final solution. And it's also right when Quana was becoming a, a big name as a talented young war chief. Even though, interestingly, you might think, since Cynthia Ann was such a celebrity, a national celebrity, even though she had passed on by this point, you might think that he would be connected to her publicly. But uh, even though his mother's name was in national papers by this point, their relation wasn't public until 1875. So people were pursuing the son of a woman they had assuredly heard about.
1: And just a side note here, Sherman actually came close to death himself on a tour of the area during this time. A Kiowa raiding party ended up bypassing his group for superstitious reasons, though, and they hit a wagon train instead in what was called the Salt Creek
0: Massacre. So Sherman knew exactly... (laughs) what what uh what was going on. But the last real attempt by Kwana and the kwahati to defend themselves against settlement came in June of 1874 along with a man named Isatai, who was a Comanche warrior and a medicine man who I really wish I had gotten to read even more about. He sounded like a pretty fascinating figure. Um, he had achieved a certain amount of unity among the bands and he, along with Quanah, led anywhere between 250 and 700 Comanche, Cheyenne, and Kiowa Warriors in an attack at Adobe Walls, Texas. And, I mean, you'd think with numbers like that, there were just about 30 buffalo hunters inside, but the attack was a disaster. The buffalo hunters had these... uh these rifles with a really long-range shot, and Kwana ended up being pretty badly wounded. Uh, It it didn't go well, and the U.S. Army retaliated really forcefully as well afterwards. Um, So Kwana and the Quahadi he was with managed to hold out for about a year after that, before he finally had to admit that the fight was over. He surrendered at Fort Sill. He acknowledged he was the son of Cynthia Ann at this point, so it's, it's 1875, and he agreed to relocate to a southwest Oklahoma reservation and encourage his people to resettle to.
1: And it's interesting, government agents ultimately made him tribal chief over all Comanche. I disc- just Distinction that clearly hadn't existed in the previous era of autonomous bands that we have been talking she about this entire all time. Comanche. Right, it wouldn't have been something before. Sure, and understandably. Some Comanche people did not take this distinction very well. You can imagine the full range of criticisms that they might have. I mean, they could think that he didn't have the right to speak for their people or that his government approval was somehow illegitimate.
0: Or even made him illegitimate. The fact that the government named him tribal chief discounted him somehow.
1: Right away and also his mixed race ancestry they they could have thought that this made him somehow suspect and there's also the fact that they might have thought that he sold out in the first place
0: but i mean if you if you look at it clearly a lot of other people did follow his lead whether that was out of respect for for who he was, you know, for his bravery as a warrior and his reputation as a warrior, or just because he seemed like the most promising person to to follow at the time, because he just had this determination to make reservation life successful and get as much as he could for the Comanche people. But he was undeniably an effective mediator between two worlds, you know, between the world of his people and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And just to name a few, a few things that he really focused on, he had the problem of, of what was he going to tell people who are used to leading a nomadic life, you know, covering thousands of acres on horseback, hunting, um, how, how was he going to convince them that settling on a reservation was going to be a, a way to go? And he really encouraged them to take up agriculture and ranching and, and even get into money-making enterprises like leasing their land to other ranchers. He himself put forth a good example with this. He, he became quite wealthy off of his own ranching, but also investments into real estate and into railroad stocks.
1: He also became a huge supporter of education, and he acted as a judge in tribal courts and really encouraged the formation of a tribal police force. He also advocated for the Comanche regularly traveling to Washington, D.C., And he became friends with some notables, like Charles Goodnight, who'd been present at the raid where Cynthia Ann was captured.
0: And and Goodnight had gone on to become a a big man since then, a cattle baron, so he was an important figure at the time.
1: And he also became friends with Teddy Roosevelt, attending his inauguration in 1905, and he even hosted Roosevelt at his own Oklahoma home,
0: Star House. But in addition to this mediating between two cultures and going to Washington, trying to get what he could, he insisted on maintaining as much of his culture as he could as well. Uh, for One main thing is, is not giving up polygamy. He had quite a few wives. He had 24 children. And it ultimately got him dismissed from the tribal court. His insistence on, uh, I think he may have promised that he wouldn't, marry any additional wives and kind of went back on that. Just a really strange note, though. It was the polygamy that really bothered the, the government guys, not Quanah's past as a war chief. I mean, as a very successful war chief who had participated in raids that was sort of whitewashed almost. Yeah,
1: the polygamy was the controversial part. Mm-hmm. And he also defended the right to use peyote in Native American church rituals sometimes his culture kind of took on a sideshow aspect when he'd participate in Wild West shows, or sometimes he would play up how people expected him to sound or to talk, but Quanah saw these shows, and even the mock attacks, as a way to display his culture to people who really had no understanding of Comanche life, so it was almost like there was an educational aspect to him acting in this way. So that's how he said he saw it.
0: And I I can see that, just um, he seemed very shrewd about uh, his his understanding of what other people knew, what other people thought Comanche were, were like, and and wanting to teach them more <laughs> in any way he could. And in some respects, he seems to have combined his two worlds pretty effortlessly. I mean, just. In terms of dress, and I know this is, is a superficial thing, but also it clearly meant something to him. He would wear a suit while he was traveling, but he preferred to wear moccasins instead of boots, and he would wear a Stetson hat. But he kept his hair in braids. I mean, any picture of him, he will have long hair. Sometimes uh, his braids wrapped in what looks like fur and wearing beads. He learned to drive a car. Uh, he he seemed to relish maintaining aspects of his culture, but indulge in what he found pleasurable in in his new life as well.
1: And he was successful in a lot of ways. He was really successful as a mediator and a peacemaker and... Uh, You know, he didn't join in with the ghost dance uprising in the 1890s. And so these facts make some of the later events in his life kind of all the more tragic. For example, in 1901, the federal government broke up the Comanche Reservation and redistributed the land. Also, uh, a young son of his died in 1906 of whooping cough.
0: And this was maybe the most poignant. I mean, clearly, the... the Breaking up the reservation was a a big blow to him, and a lot of people just left at that point. Like, okay, we're not going to do this anymore. He did stay put. But one really poignant and tragic aspect of this, especially for a man who thought that education was clearly the way to success, um, his eight-year-old son was dismissed from public school in Oklahoma because white parents had complained. He ended up having to go to a school just for Native American children instead. But it was upsetting for for Quanah to see that, for somebody who had worked so hard to be a mediator and to embrace uh, certain aspects of this new culture he was in, to, to have it just... Turn around and on him. and for somebody to whom education was so important. Yeah, and to see to see that happen to his son. But probably the real kicker here is he wouldn't have been eligible to be a U.S. citizen until more than ten years after his death. Um, something that's just you know I don't think we need to make any more comment on that. Um, but we mentioned this at the beginning and at the end of the last episode too that. Clearly, even though Quanah was separated from his mother at a very young age, she left a big impression on him and the circumstances of her life, that she had been captured as a girl by the Comanche, and then that she had been captured again by her own people. Uh, And he was really haunted by, by her story. In
1: 1910, when his mother and sister were reinterred, he said, quote, 40 years ago, my mother died. She captured by Comanches nine years old. Love Indian and wildlife so well, she no want to go back to white folks. All same people anyway, God say. So before he died at Star House in 1911, he requested that he be buried not with his wives, but with his mother and his sister, and his grave reads, quote, "Resting here until day breaks and shadows fall and darkness disappears," is Quana Parker last chief of the Comanche.
0: And that is, in fact, true, because from that point on, the Comanche called their elected leaders chairman rather than chief. Um, So a truly remarkable life, sad story, somebody who just, I don't know, I I think maybe just the talent he he showed in in these wildly different worlds was what stood out to me. Um, And that's just so poignantly mirrored by Cynthia Ann's horrible misfit sort of life. Uh, I mean, I know she did come to a comfortable situation among her Comanche people, but just being a captive twice in her life, uh, they, they sort of twin each other in a, in a very sad but fascinating sort of way. Um, one more thing I just wanted to mention, too recently Jonathan and I recorded an episode on codes in World War II, Mm -hmm. and we talked quite a bit about code talkers, focusing on the the Navajo code talkers. But we did mention the Comanche as well, and and how the language was so complex. You know, it was a natural choice, and one that they felt, uh, or one that the the military felt that it was unlikely the language had been compromised. (laughs) You know, it was unknown to outsiders. And, um, I I started just sort of thinking about that in terms of generations and thinking those young men who were Comanche co-talkers. I mean, this would have been uh, their grandparents would have lived at the same time as as Quana Parker potentially, um, and how closely tied that is to to this era, and to have. These men who signed up to go serve, I believe that most of the Comanche were in Europe, in the European theater. But to have them sign up, they were thrilled to be able to use their language in an official capacity and serve the United States and serve with their cousins and their friends. Um, Just Tying all that together was neat to do.
1: And while we're on the topic of the importance of the Comanche language, we should give another shout-out to Dr. Day, right, Sarah?
0: Dr. Kenneth Day of the Learn Comanche Project.
1: Yeah, I, I think he said that he they might have an online learning course Coming up sometime soon in the future. So that'll be interesting. We did our
0: best with our Comanche pronunciation. We tried. <laughs> any
1: mistakes that we made are not any result of any advice that you gave us.
0: And we will say it's supposed to be a notoriously hard language, so you know
1: <laughs> <laughs> Give
0: ourselves a little pat on the back there for, for well, trying. Just, just excusing any any possible slips, you know. We did our best. <laughs>
1: So we have kind of a mixed bag of mail today. We have a little email, and then I think we have some real mail, right, Sarah? We do. So first of all, we have a note from Kristen, and she says, I wanted to send you a picture of what I'm working on while listening, the scroll to my final viola. I'm finishing violin making school in Chicago, and have been working my way through every episode for the past few months. Your podcast keeps me more focused than music, especially the last six weeks for my final exam. She also gives us, she goes on to give us some music-related episode suggestions and we'll just hang on to those in case we use them in the future.
0: We love music podcasts. We so do. so much fun to do. And we also saw uh, some of her pictures too of, of the instruments she's working on. They're really beautiful and it looks like a super fun thing to be training for. Um, we also wanted to thank a couple of our listeners who sent us in stuff. Listener Teppy, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, sent us a, a comic called Murder Dollhouse that he illustrated himself, which is really cool. That sounds like kind of
1: a spooky story.
0: Well, plus all these awesome little postcards with illustrations that have funny sayings, such as, I'm not a bowl of milk. I don't mix with flakes. Also, thank you to listener Judy, who sent us um, some information about the museum she works at, too. She's at Epworth by the Sea uh, in St. Simon's, which is Georgia. So, thank you both. Have you ever been to St. Thaum and Stavlina? I have not. It's a nice little place. That's what I hear. I like, I like South Georgia trips. I have a one branch of the family is from down there, so oh, cool. it's fun to visit. Um, anyway, thank you both for, for sending along nice gifts like that, and thank you, too, for, for all the emails we receive, such as our instrument maker.
1: Yeah, if you want to send us any notes about what you're doing while you're listening to the podcast, or you want to give us some suggestions like this listener did, you can write us. At, we're at historypodcast at discovery.com, or you can look us up on Facebook, and we're on Twitter at Missed in History.
0: And if you want to learn more history topics, more culture topics, all sorts of things like that, we of course have tons and tons of articles, all of them to be found on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com